Hey everybody, Sam Ellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and I'm grateful for you listening to the 36th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. 36 is, of course, Steve Balboni's home run total from 1985, which stood as a Royals franchise record for a shameful 32 years until Mike Moustakas hit 38 in 2017. Our goal today is always to be worth your time. This week we're going to do that with a point about baseball and the men who run it. Another great batch of questions on the difference between Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers, Brett Veach's vision for the next three or five years, Carlos Santana's place on the Royals, and what rivalries might look like after COVID. We're going to finish with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes answering the most important Chiefs question of the moment, which is how far away they are from what they want to be for the postseason and what needs to happen for them to get there. Okay, uh, the Star is running a special promotion for the Sports Pass right now, $1 a month for three months for all of our sports coverage, including more original Chiefs content than you can find anywhere else. You can find that on our website or just reach out to me, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and I'll send you the link. All right, so this is going to be two weeks in a row where we don't lead the show with the Chiefs, and I want you to know at least two things. Like, first, the next two segments are full of Chiefs stuff, and second, I would not do this without some extraordinary circumstances, and I think that we've had that. Last week, it was Matt Beasler essentially being cut by Sporting Kansas City, and whenever a Kansas City kid who broke barriers and won trophies for a Kansas City team has a 12-year run on the club end, I mean... I'm going to reserve the right to lead the show with that, right? And 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 I would do that even if Beasler hadn't posted a tweet about it thanking everyone in the world except Peter Vermees. Okay, then this week, well, guys, this gives me no joy. You, you probably know that I love baseball. You probably know that I watch baseball and think about baseball. And, and in this way that I don't do with any other sport, I like I root for baseball. And what I mean by that is I want the sport to be popular. Like, I love a lot of sports, but I can't say I root for entire sports the way that I do baseball. Like, I mean, football and basketball, I adore probably as much more than than I do baseball. But those sports don't need it. Um, Soccer is growing all the time. I've never been particularly invested in, you know, golf or tennis or hockey as a spectator sport. But baseball now, as much as ever, is sort of climbing uphill, you know, like sailing against the current. And, you know, the games are long. And they're long at a time when potential fans want short. And baseball is often subtle. And it's subtle at a time when potential fans want fireworks. And, you know, the sports attendance has been strong. But, you know, the fan base is aging. And, you know, the sport is sort of like retreated to be seen, you know, sort of locally and not nationally. I mean, there's just there's some stuff going on that's just going against baseball. So I root for it. And I root for it despite. And, you know, actually, let me back up a bit. I root for baseball against the men who run the sport. And that is especially true right now because that old line about how you know baseball is the best sport because it thrives despite the idiots in charge. I mean, that that has never been truer than it is right now. And, you know, I want to give credit right at the top here uh, where it's due because a lot of what I'm going to talk about right now is based on reporting by Bob Nightingale, Ken Rosenthal, and, and Evan Drellick. You know, Nightingale's reporting is particularly disheartening. He quotes an anonymous National League owner saying there's not, quote, a snowball's chance in hell, end quote, that spring training starts on time and a 162-game season follows. Um, Nightingale also quotes an American League owner 
saying there's a zero, zero, zero is what he said, percent chance of starting spring training on the normal schedule. And uh, he's floating a season of 80 to 140 games. Look, like, this is patently ridiculous, even by the owner's standards. And they should be embarrassed for talking like this, for pretending that this is about a vaccine and not a negotiating play against the players. And all of this done just months after an objectively just shameful and public back and forth about the start and the length of the 2020 season. We, I, I want to keep this show family friendly, right? Um, so I'm not going to say exactly what's in my heart right now, but I, I hope that the vibe is coming through just crystal clear, if you know what I mean. Because these freaking owners just staged a 2020 season without a bubble against public health advice. And some of them even pushed for fans to be in the stands. And there were fans in the stands for the World Series and, and the NLCS. And that was played in a city and state with spiking case numbers. And now, all of a sudden, they want to grab their pearls and talk about how it's not safe for adult baseball players to play a game with those same protocols and without a vaccine. <laughs> like, I, I just, <laughs> this stuff drives me crazy. And, and I don't know how they can expect any reasonable human to see this as anything other than another short-sighted negotiation ploy to get players to accept less money in 2021 salary and in this winner's free agency, or both. Scott Boris, I say those words, and I know a, what a lot of you guys think of him, and he's obviously biased, but he's also really, really smart. And he is often the only one who works in baseball who is willing to put his name on calling the owners BS. So Scott Boris this week made the point that lost profits are not the same as lost money. And God, that hit me in a really good spot, right? Like that, that is the thing. Owners are talking about how they're losing money and they're not, they're just not, no longer losing record profits. And most of them, and look, Steve Cohen of the Mets and John Sherman of the Royals are exceptions on this because they just bought in. But the other 28 have years and years of record revenue to, to fall back on. So I want to be clear. I do believe that a lot of owners lost money in 2020. I do believe that. I also believe that those owners have made a lot of money for a lot of years and that accomplished businessmen should be embarrassed if one bad year turns them upside down like this. Look, um, again, to be clear, there is a case to be made for delaying the season. And really, if the season was 140 games, I think that's closer to what it should be anyway than 162. But that's not the conversation we're having. Because the, the owners are so dishonest with their reasons and, and just so self-destructive with their process of doing this. Like, look, I'm all for journalism, obviously, and you know, I want people to be open with reporters, but why are the owners doing this? Like whatever like petty, tiny negotiation advantage they think they have, what whatever that means, like how is that not negated and and not just negated, but negated and then some? By the continued erosion and confidence people have about the stability of the sport. Like, look, like, you know, uh, they've got me, right? Like, I'm going to watch. I I'm going to go to games and I do that even if I had a real job. Uh, but I'm not the audience. I'm not the target audience. I'm hooked and I'll be hooked for life and I'm going to work on getting my kids hooked. But that last part, get my kids hooked. Right. That, that is made more difficult with owners who collectively see these wild profits as like some ordained right instead of a privilege. Like their actions way too often 
way too often show this priority for these selfish, short-sighted interests instead of trying to grow the game. And like, I'm not naive, right? Like, I understand how business works. And, uh, but that's actually part of my frustration because these are such short-sighted actions. Like, the benefits run out long before the negatives start. And I, I just wish that like the capital B baseball, like the, the men in charge of teams and the commissioner's office, I, I, I just wish that they would focus first on growing the game and, and, and making it more attractive and accessible and welcoming and fun for potential fans. Like the NFL, the NFL can get away with just about whatever they want because the product is so appealing to so many people. Uh, same with the NBA. And, you know, baseball is in a different spot in 2020, right? But these men in charge they still operate with this arrogance like it's the 1960s or something and like i'm not trying to rant here but it's it's just so frustrating like the powers of major league baseball they make their products so hard to love sometimes right and i'm gonna be so sad like if if when i'm old and my kids are grown and have kids of their own if they're not hooked on baseball and can't get their kids hooked on baseball, I'll just be so sad if like baseball's place in their world, like when I'm old and my kids are my age, if baseball is like boxing or horse racing or chess is now, I just, it's going to make me sad. You guys, I, I just, baseball can do better. It should do better. Okay. Look, before we move on to the rest of the show, I got to say this part. The the podcast is free, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you one more time to join us behind the paywall. We work hard to bring you information and perspectives that you can't get in other places. We have the most journalists working the Chiefs beat, the most combined experience around the team, the most perspectives. So please help support us. Give the Sports Pass a try. Again, you can join for a dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for a year. You can find those links online or just reach out to me and I'll send them along. Okay, quick break. And then we will be back with some questions. If you want to participate in the next show, which will not be next week, I'm going to take next week off, uh, spend it with my family. But if you want to participate in in the next show, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone. Call anytime, 816-234-4365. Or as the great reader Michael points out, 816-BEG-IDLE. <laughs> anyway, quick break. And then we're back with those questions. The first what I guess is now our weekly look at Patrick Mahomes as MVP chances. Hi, Sam. Doc from Columbia, Missouri. What do you think about the MVP race between Mahomes and Rodgers? What really irritates me is they talk about how Mahomes has all these weapons and that Rodgers deserves it because he's working with less. And they don't even consider the difference in the offensive lines, which to me is really important that Rodgers can sit back there, set his feet and throw, and that's rare with Mahomes and Rogers also has an all pro receiver. So what's your take on that, Sam, as if it really matters, but it's something that we talk a lot about. So have a good day. Bye-bye. Look, this is not a popular thing to say in Kansas city, but the chief's offensive line is fine in pass protection. It's above league average even. And 
I should say I get how it looks, you know, and, and this has the chance for me to come off condescending. So I just want to be clear here that if I had a real job and couldn't spend as much time as I do watching other teams and looking through nerdy numbers and all this, I'd probably be cursing the pass protection too because Patrick Mahomes is the franchise and every drop back is a risk and some of the biggest moments come when he breaks out of the pocket. But a lot of those, like him breaking out of the pocket I'm talking about here, a lot of those are on Mahomes. He's been open about this too, and so is Andy Reid. You know, Mahomes sees ghosts sometimes with the pressure, which is not unusual, especially for a, a younger quarterback. It's not a huge flaw, but it's relevant here when we're talking about pass protection. Like Pro Football Focus, for instance, they put 39 of the Chiefs' 167 pressures allowed this season on Mahomes. That's more than any of the offensive linemen um, who has a group rate the eighth best in the league. If you go over to Pro Football Reference, you will see the Chiefs rank 13th in pressure percentage allowed. So whatever it's worth, those numbers are about what I would have guessed, that the Chiefs has something like good pass protection, not great. But, you know, anyway, look, like if if your point is to only compare like Rodgers protection with Mahomes, then yeah, like Rodgers wins out here. Like the Packers might have the best line in football and those guys are studs. And there's no doubt that Rodgers benefits there. But to say that the difference there makes up for Mahomes having, you know, a top five receiver, a Hall of Fame tight end, you know, not to mention like the first round running back, Sammy Watkins, McCall Hardman, Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy. Like I, I, these things are all subjective, right? But like Mahomes is operating in a what to me is a clearly better context than than Rodgers. Doesn't mean Rodgers should automatically win the MVP. Um, I, I think that race will be decided here down the stretch. But it is an argument in Rodgers' favor. Like the same as the fact that, you know, Mahomes has never had an awful game like Rodgers did against the Bucks. Like that's an argument in Mahomes' favor. Um, so, okay, here's a more big picture Chiefs question. Hey, Sam, it's Mike from Kansas City. I'd like you to do a piece, either the podcast or just in your Mellinger minutes or something on Brett Veach. He's kind of a uh, not a forgotten person, but nobody knows much about him, including what real influence he had on the Mahomes decision and the decision since, just so we get a look forward of what the next five years look like. I think it would be a fascinating thing that people are interested in. Thank you. I hope you guys don't think that we've been ignoring Brett Veach. I think we've talked about him here. I think we've written a lot about his style, both in the the minutes and regular columns. But I'm happy to do that more right now. You know, his influence on the Mahomes decision, enormous. He was the first one to identify Mahomes in the scouting process, the first one to present Mahomes to Reed, uh, the first one to make the case within the department, and, and to John Dorsey, who was the GM then, that this is the guy they should take. Chris Cabot, who is Mahomes' agent, has said on the record, uh, he said that, that Veach is the only person he knows who liked Mahomes as much as he did. I've never heard an agent talk like that before, by the way. The stories I've heard, and, and this comes from multiple people, but the stories I've heard are that Dorsey wanted wanted to take defense with that pick and had to be talked out of it by Veach and others who become convinced, including Reed. So look, I don't bring any of this up to dump on Dorsey. Please don't let that be the takeaway. I'm just telling you guys what happened. And I believe that we're going to have a question in the digital minutes uh, soon about Dorsey specifically. So we'll get into his significant work here more then. But, um, you know, there's a reason that when Dorsey was let go, that Veach was the favorite right away. He's far from perfect. You know, the the Chiefs' first pick in, in Veach's first draft in charge was Breland Speaks. Um, the interior of the line right now is just not good enough. The linebackers could be upgraded. Like, you, you know, you know the deal. But if you're asking about his vision for the next three or five years, 
And I think it's sound and smart. Um, he wants to keep as much of the core together as possible and continue to leverage the winning and the good vibes between teammates and coaches into these team-friendly structures like we saw with Mahomes and Kelsey and Chris Jones. You know, two of Veach's, I think, defining worldviews in his job. One is to stay younger with the roster, and the other is to keep strengths strengths. And, you know, that means he probably won't give out a lot of third contracts, um, you know, like the one that the Chiefs regretted almost immediately with Tom Bahali. And it means that they'll continue to draft and sign offense with with resources a lot of folks, maybe including me, might think that should be spent on defense. Um, you know, they have this rare opportunity here, right? Um, they have this championship window that can legitimately be expected to remain open for the next two to four years or perhaps even beyond. And in the, in the NFL, that is an absolute eternity. So they are doing everything they can right now to maximize that. And I think that's what the GM in this position should be doing. Okay, Royals question here. Hey, Sam, this is Charles from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, my question is, I'd like for you guys to discuss more the impact of Carlos Santana on the Walls lineup and what you think he's going to bring to the lineup and how this going to impact how the team plays. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Yeah, man, uh, this is significant, and we are going to get into the Royals a lot more um, and all this stuff in a column that's either posted right now on KansasCity.com or, or will be soon. Obviously, I hope you read that, but the Royals have been a little bit more aggressive than I expected. Um, some of that is circumstantial. You know, um, they had some pre-existing relationships and, and other teams pulling back on the spending. But, you know, the deals for Mike Miner and Carlos Santana and, you know, to a lesser extent, uh, Michael Taylor and Greg Holland, these, these are precise in addressing needs. And, and it's a push where the Royals wanted their payroll without busting what's realistic. You know, the, the, the column gets into all of that and more, but you're, you're asking specifically about Santana. So let me give the basics. The, the Royals should be a better offensive team next year. And Santana is a significant reason why. Uh, he's going to hit near the top or the middle of the order. My guess is clean up, but I could see him hitting second or third as well. Um, he, he is a switch hitter who's, you know, dangerous from both sides. Um, that balances the lineup. It lengthens the lineup. Um, he has some of the best plate discipline in baseball, which, you know, is, is something this team really needs. Um, it, you know, the, he, like his presence with all of those skills, it just provides like some much needed on base, uh, provides a little bit more protection against overextending a young hitter who's not quite ready for the biggest spots. You know, it also means that Hunter Dozier will play primarily third base. Um, and there are a lot of wild cards in here. You know, uh, Franchi Cordero's health, Mondesi's consistency, but a lineup that goes something like Merrifield, Mondesi, Santana, Jorge Soler, Sal Perez, Franchi Cordero, Hunter Dozier, Nicky Lopez, Michael Taylor. I mean, that's a lot better than the Royals have had. Um, you know, that that's has the potential at least to be, you know, the best lineup they've had in, in a few years. You know, th- there's some moving parts, um, you know, about what the minor leagues will look like. Uh, and that could have a negative impact on when guys are ready. But, you know, the Royals will also have like Khalil Lee, Nick Heath, you know, Bobby Witt Jr. at some point that, you know, th- they'll have some guys that they project for the big leagues down there, too. So, you know, I'm not I'm not here talking about the Royals winning the division or or making the World Series, like nothing like that. But I, I do think that they should be expected to compete. Um, I do think they should be expected to be in it until the end and that a playoff push, you know, it's no longer out of the question the way it has been for a while. That's something at least, right? Okay, here's one more question. This one from Rachel. Hey, Sam, this is Rachel calling from Omaha, Nebraska. I have a question this week. So um, as we know, some games have 
you know, big implications because of rankings, college football, play, um, college basketball, or the NFL for getting a playoff seed. And then there's some games that have, um, that are important to people because of rivalries. So with COVID and not having fans in the stands, do you think that there'll be any impact going forward on rivalries, specifically college? You know, I think KUK State. Um, but even in the NFL, such as like the AFC West Chiefs foes, just interested to get your thoughts on that. Thank you. So, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting question, and there are a lot of different ways to answer this. Um, my sense has always been, and this is especially true in pro, pro sports, but my sense has always been that the intensity of rivalries, like that's always been like 98% fan-driven. Um, I know coaches and players will talk about rivalry games and, and how they look forward to them and all that, but I promise you, I've always heard that is guys just either saying what they know fans want to hear or, you know, more often talking about the noise and intensity and everything else they hear from fans during games. So, you know, like hashtag in these unprecedented times, right? But, uh, you know, that extra level of intensity just isn't there. It can't be, right? Like it's not fan generated. Um, you know, that doesn't mean guys aren't getting up for games or moments. Uh, but what it means is that the the natural rise in adrenaline and excitement that comes from playing in front of, you know, 15,000 screaming fans in a basketball game or, you know, way more than that in football, it's just not there. So the games are like more <laughs> normal. I don't know. Uh, but if I'm hearing your question right, like you're also asking about what this stuff might look like on the other side of COVID. And I do feel fairly strongly here, like, you know, COVID has flipped the world upside down, like obviously, right? But, uh, and I'm not going to be surprised if there are fewer sports fans when this is over, um, you know, or at the very least, like a lot of hardcore sports fans, you know, might become more like casual fans. Um, you know, that happens to a lot of people as they get older anyway, but I think the impact of these games being played without fans will be significant. I think it'll be long lasting. Like sports are, and look, like, I don't think this is not an opinion. This is just a fact. Um, sports are not as appealing to watch with limited or no fans in the stands. They're just not like, you know, if Alabama is playing a night game at LSU, um, you know, you don't have to know or care about either team or even football to be drawn in on the aesthetics, the energy of something like that. Like you can get hooked pretty quick. But, you know, when teams are playing in front of like 80,000 empty seats, like, you know, that's a lot easier to skip past with your remote. Right. Um, or if you're there watching it, it's a lot it's going to be a lot easier to flip away once, you know, one team gets up by two or three scores. Um, it's just not the same. It just can't be. And, you know, for the last like almost year, the sports ecosystem hasn't been operating fully. It hasn't been like its best self. It hasn't been, you know, drawing in as many new fans as usual. It hasn't been providing the same level of entertainment. So I do think that'll have an impact for sure. And, you know, I'm probably answering questions you're not asking at this point, but, you know, a lot of sports business folks and stadium designers, you know, they've been preparing for a new reality, like long before COVID, um, a new reality where like stadiums would get smaller, um, the experience is more unique and high end, um, you know, stadiums would be viewed a little bit more like TV studios. And I wonder if that process will be accelerated now. But, um, you know, either way, I, I think the next world in which, you know, people are free to move around without restrictions, um, I, I do think that it might include fewer sports fans. Uh, I hope I'm wrong about that, obviously, for a million reasons. But um, that's what I think. And if that's true, then I think rivalry games will be, you know, a little less loud and the product on TV won't be quite what it was before. Um, but I have to tell you. I, I would sign the heck up for like half of what it was before right now. Um, I just want to see crowds again, you know, 
Okay, that, that's it for the questions. We're going to take one more quick break, and then we'll be back with a lot more Chief stuff, including Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. you some chiefs so here is some chiefs coming straight at your ear holes uh look it, it probably goes without saying but i have never covered a team like this um they are the consensus and you know maybe even unanimous uh best team in the league they have a very high floor and a ceiling that nobody else can match and yet like you you watch them play particularly recently and it feels easier to talk about the stuff that didn't go right you know what i mean like you know these guys are 12 and 1 Super Bowl champions, only loss came to a team they beat on the road. But the discussion seems like pretty consistently to be about how they might lose in the playoffs. Like, you know, interior of the line, the run defense, short yardage, whatever. And um, I don't mean to create, criticize anybody doing that. I've done some of it. It's all legit. You know, these guys, they, the, the team has earned the high standard. But I wanted to sort of advance the discussion a bit here, if we can. Like, first with, you know, two theories about why that is. And, and then with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, in their own words, indirectly addressing this stuff. So first, the, the theories. The first is that I believe that Chiefs fans are by nature skeptical. They they come by this honestly. I've said that a bajillion times. But even now, with what has every look of one of the best teams in recent league history, that, that skepticism is still there, you know, even if it's in a bit a bit different form. So now what I mean by that is like now, instead of worrying about like the agonizing way that the team might lose a playoff game, I feel like Chiefs fans like that skepticism comes in a sort of like paranoia about whether the Super Bowl window will be maximized because there is not a single soul involved with this team. And I'm talking about everybody, you know, Clark Hunt, Mark Donovan, Brett Veach, Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, all the way down to Gary Dieter. Like none of these guys will feel satisfied if this thing ends without another Super Bowl or three. Um, you know, fans are the same way. So all of these moments just like become precious. You know, like when, when you're 10 and six and you're a wild card team, it's a lot easier to look at it like house money. You know, you know what I mean? But when you're 12 and one, you know, unicorn quarterbacks surrounded by stars, like any imperfection can feel like doom. And so anyway, that's my first theory. And the, the, the second is a little bit more football centric. Um, you know, the second theory involves around the fact that this team, when it's right, plays some of the most beautiful football that the world has ever seen. There, there, there are moments um, those are the moments that you remember. You know what I mean? Like the first half against the Ravens, the first quarter against the Bucks, the, the comebacks last year in the playoffs. You know, those moments, like they stay in your brain. You know what I mean? They're the ones you think about. Um, so when the game happens and, you know, McCole Hardman drops a pass or, you know, Demarcus Robinson turns the wrong way or pressure comes up the middle, whatever, like these imperfections happen, they can feel like almost like offensive, right? Because we know what it's supposed to look like. And, and not just that, but we know that these guys are talented enough and, and finely tuned enough to pull it off. So anyway, that's my second theory. Um, but OK, so a, as promised, um, here's Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes talking about this indirectly. The, this first clip is from Andy, and uh, he was asked, like, how close he thinks the team is. And for whatever it's worth, I, I felt like he was talking mostly about the offense here, though he was also very complimentary about the defense against the Dolphins, you know, at least until the end. But anyway, here's Andy on how close he thinks the team is. 
So I, I we're close. We're, we've got a few games here to, or a couple games here at least to, uh, to get ourselves uh, right uh, where we're really hitting that thing uh, full speed. Andy is much more likely to undersell than over. You know what I mean? So I, I think that quote is significant. And, you know, for whatever it's worth, it matches my eye test. And I think what a lot of others have been thinking as well. I think there's a logical case to make that if they're without Fisher and Remmers, which would mean they're they're playing with their fourth and fifth options at tackle, that they should just go super conservative because they can lose this game and still get the one seed. Um, and and there's no there's no profit in, in putting Mahomes back there against a really good pass rush and, and letting him get beat up um, playing behind, you know, your fourth and fifth tackle. Um, I don't know if that's what they'll do, but I think there's a very good case to make, which makes, you know, potentially anyway, this a lot less relevant when we're talking about what the Chiefs offense can look like in the playoffs. But anyway, here's Patrick Mahomes, like asked basically the same thing uh, that Andy was about how far the offense is from its playoff self. Um he, he, he was told that Andy said that he felt the team was really close to where it wanted to be for the playoffs. And um, anyway, here's, uh, here's Mahomes' view of what they need to close that gap. I think it's just about being consistent uh, for a full, a full four quarters. Uh, we've had spans in every single game where we've been able to do what we want and put points on the board and execute the offense at a high level. But it seems like there's, there's one span or there's one little area that we don't execute on uh, every single game. And so just trying to be consistent as, as, as we possibly can. Uh, and, we'll, and what better test than going up against a, one of the best defenses in the league uh, in the New Orleans Saints and being able to go out there and, and put up uh, what, what we, we're going to see when we get to the playoffs and then and maybe in the Super Bowl. Isn't that the whole thing right there? You know what I mean? That's kind of what we've been talking about. Like, not just here on the podcast, but, you know, columns in the minutes. Like, I, I know it's what a lot of you guys have been thinking as well. You know, and this this consistency, consistency thing, it's it's easier said than done, right? Um, you know, football is complicated. Um, you know, 22 moving parts on every play. And, you know, just getting each guy to do what he's supposed to do is a challenge, you know, let alone get the execution. But... Um, and, and I know that we don't need another compliment thrown Mahomes' way, right? But it really does start with him. Like, you know, what, one thing we don't talk a lot about is he is like such an extension of Reed and, and he has become that. We've seen that over these three years. You, you hear it in some of the things that he says, you know, he uses the same terminology. Um, and, and, and as he plays, you can see that he's seen the game a lot like Reed. And I mean, you know, just like from 30,000 feet, and I, I know there are a lot of other factors here. But he's more decisive. He's more on schedule. Um, you know, he's sort of less like he was at Texas Tech now than he was in his first year as a starter. And you can see that, right? Like, and I think you can also hear it. You can hear in this clip, right? Uh, you know, he's talking about uh, right now his, his role in getting the Chiefs to their best. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel more comfortable every single year, every single game that, that I'm out there. I mean, uh, even if you look back at last week, they gave us some unscouted stuff, and I was able to pull back from what the New England Patriots had, uh, Patriots had done to us. Uh, in years past and then being able to uh, find ways to get completions and to get the protections right. So, I mean, I feel more comfortable the more experience I get. Um, you, that's how that, that's how it is, this quarterback uh, position. And so I'll try to keep improving my body so I can keep my, my body as, as high as my mind is and uh, make sure that I'm ready to go and, and better and better every single start I'm out there. That should not just be taken for granted. By the way, you know, guys don't just automatically get to the NFL and, and talk and think like that, especially after an MVP and Super Bowl MVP, you know, in, in your first two years as a starter. Um, you know, because like if we're honest, like Mahomes has earned the right 
to be a little hands off on what needs fixing. You know what I mean? Um, or at least just talk, talk generally in terms of like, you know, hey, it's about all of us finding that little extra improvement or whatever. But, you know, he'll talk specifically about his role in that. Um, you know, so the league's best player committing to get better, um, you know, to not be content. And when that's what you're hearing and when that's what the guys in the locker room are seeing at the sort of the top of the roster food chain, then everyone else, you got no choice but to join in. You know what I mean? Like, um, again, like the Chiefs have flaws, like all NFL teams and three weeks is not enough to fix them all. But they're approaching this final stretch from as strong a position as you can imagine. And we should talk about that stuff, too. Okay, so that's the show this week. I appreciate you for listening. Hope we're worth your time. And if I can impose, I hope we're worth subscribing to, rating, reviewing. Really helps get the word out. Thanks to Savannah Smith for putting this together. Thanks to everyone who called in, even those we couldn't get to this week. And again, the biggest thanks to you for listening. Um, By the way, uh, no show next week I plan to spend with my wife and our kids. So I I hope you have a good weekend and week, and we'll get back to it after the Falcons game. Be kind.